You're listening to The Over 50 Entrepreneur, the podcast that's dedicated to the business builders who are only getting started when most are winding down. This is the place to discover how to create more freedom from your business while growing the value of your business. Now here's your host, Rick Hadrava. Hi, everybody. This is Rick Hadrava, and you're listening to The Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. Appreciate you being on the call today, and I am really excited to have our guest on the show. He is not only a friend of mine, uh, just an all-around great guy, but he's a successful lawyer, author, entrepreneur, family man, and an avid outdoorsman, somebody that I really enjoy spending time with when I get to. Uh, I think he's the type of guy for me that every time I spend time with him, I feel pushed to work harder, uh, to think differently, think at a different level. And just go go to that next level. So I'm very excited to welcome my friend Tal Franklin to the show. And uh, Tal, welcome. Thanks for taking time to be on our show today. Thanks, Rick. So so Tal, you know, I I I, I kind of give a little background on on what I know about you and things like that. But why don't you why don't you start by sharing with us? Uh, just take a few minutes and and. Give us your backstory. How did you get to where you are today? Sure. I started my career as a juvenile rehabilitation counselor in a maximum security unit of a juvenile prison. I worked there for a while. I left there to go to graduate school where I got my master's in quantitative research methodology and taught at the University of Washington for about six months after that. I can't remember exactly. And then I went to law school and I graduated law school, started at a law firm that I really didn't enjoy, left there within, I can't remember, maybe three months, Uh, went to another law firm, which I had a great time at, but wanted to move. So we moved to a different city, uh, worked at uh, another law firm that was a primary plaintiff's class action type firm. Did that for a couple of years. Then I went on to American Airlines where I ran the intellectual property group. Um, And then we had 9-11. And so uh, I was laid off and I started a new position at, well, actually I took some time off from that. I wrote a book on branding and then I uh, got that published and I got a job at uh, another law firm, a large law firm. And uh, I was there for a couple of years, and then I had an opportunity to go to another large law firm. And at that law firm, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I had a lot of fun there. Uh, it was called Patton Boggs, and it was a, it was a terrific uh, law firm in many ways, but it was also one of the top public policy firms in the country. And through public policy, uh, I learned a lot about how to not only litigate a case, but also move things forward on the public policy front so you could really serve your client in different ways. And that was kind of eye-opening for me uh, and really actually quite enjoyable. Primarily my focus after uh, my, uh, my position at American Airlines, I'd, I'd hoped to do intellectual property, but the group that was at that law firm I went to after uh, left all at once right when I got there. So I was left with nothing to do. And a fellow came up to me uh, named Terry Miller, great guy, and asked me if I would be his mortgage-backed securities litigator. And I didn't really know what that was, but it sounded interesting. So I started doing that. 
And I found that field extremely fascinating. The people were all very smart. It was going up against some of the largest financial institutions in the country, some of the largest law firms in the country. And uh, I just found the quality of the representation all around to be very high. And so I, I fell into that more than intellectual property and uh, wound up writing a book on mortgage-backed securities litigation, which was published around 2008. And I you know, I think the book was well-written, not because of anything I did, but because I had a lot of great section authors that did a terrific job and came together to publish something, a massive treatise in only three months. So it was pretty exciting. Wes published that and it became, I think, I think the quality of the work was great, as I said, not due to me, but others, but also the timing. So it was one of the best sellers in the history of that publisher. And it's now in two volumes and we're still publishing it. And I subsequently wrote a book on the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act, or the TARP program, as most people know it, or the bailout. And that was, that was an interesting period because you got to really learn what actually happened and how close we actually came to a complete meltdown of our society in ways that I don't think anybody really could fully imagine or understand. Uh, and, you know, we can all speculate what would have happened, but it was a it was a very touch and go time and, and a lot of lessons were learned that I don't know that anybody actually, uh, we learned the lessons, whether we did anything to effectuate that learning, I, I think is questionable. In fact, some of the tools that the government used to stabilize us were taken away by Dodd-Frank. So you, you have to wonder, you know, whether we're better off now than, than we were before. And in some ways we are, in some ways we aren't. And uh, sure. subsequent to my time at, at Patent Boggs, I, I ultimately became an equity partner. I was head of litigation and deputy head firm-wide, so head of litigation in my office and deputy head firm-wide. But we had an opportunity, and the opportunity was that there were many investors in mortgage-backed securities who wanted to take collective action, but they didn't. They're all competitors, so they couldn't really trust each other with each other's holdings information because that's like their secret sauce. So they came to me and they said, what, how do we do this? And I said, well, I have a very easy solution. Why doesn't every investor in mortgage-backed securities in the world hire me as their lawyer? And then they can share with me confidentially <laughs> their holdings information and I can put them together and we can take collective action. And they said, that's a great idea. And I took that to Pat and Boggs. And at that time, for whatever reason, they were interested in representing banks. Now, all of a sudden, they hadn't been doing it for years, but as a result of the financial crisis, they, they became interested. And so they said, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity for you. Why don't you go out on your own and um, we'll help you? And they did. And so I, they gave me access to their offices or not access to the office, but they gave me office space in their offices worldwide whenever I needed it. And so it was really terrific. And we had some, some, collaborations with them as well on things that they could work on, which was nice. And uh, since then, the firm has been in existence uh, almost, I guess, over over nine years now, almost 10 years. And uh, we're winding down the mortgage-backed securities practice. They haven't made a mortgage-backed security since 2008. So this has been a long and good run, but we're now moving into things that... Uh, I just have found interesting. In other words, I've, I've started to look around and say, okay, well, what, what can I do 
and, and by the way, I, I felt like the work we were doing on behalf of investors was, was very beneficial to society. Obviously, people who invest in bank stocks are going to disagree with that uh, vehemently. So, you know, we, we can just agree to disagree on that point. But that said, now that mortgage-backed securities has wound down, I am now engaged in other types of litigation where I just see, frankly, huge injustices in our system, and I'd like to remedy those. And one of the nice things about being a lawyer is you actually can, with a court case, make a, 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 a difference in the way the world operates, right? So, for example, right. I, can, I can go out there and rally and, and rail about the fact that opioids are prescribed like candy and are highly addictive and, and lives are being destroyed. I can do that as an advocate. And a lot of people have done that. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm in favor of it, in fact. But if I can find a choke point in the system whereby I can sue one entity and it can completely change the standards by which opioids are prescribed, that is a more efficient use of of the system we have. And so, for example, we've sought to do that, and I won't get into the details of that case, but I, I, look, at, I, look, at, I look for opportunities like that. And that's been sort of the focus of my practice moving okay. forward. Another big thing that I think is terrible is if you look at student lending right now. You know, when, when the Greeks invented money, they soon after invented debt and they would borrow money and they would pledge their children as collateral. And when they failed to make payments on those debts, those children would be taken and sold into slavery. And so the Athenians actually revolted and they got a new government in who actually went out and bought back all these enslaved Athenians that they could find. And while I'm not trying to compare economic shackles to slavery, I do think we are imposing a sort of economic form of slavery on our children right now, where the cost of education has gone through the roof. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders talks about free education for all. I went to school in, in the 80s, and I think my tuition was 400 bucks, something like that, at University of Washington. So, you know, while it wasn't free, it was pretty close. And, you know, that same institution today would be $10,000 in state, maybe. Right. So you're just right. looking at enormous, enormous uh, inflation that way outpaces the, the rate of inflation for any other good or service. And so, you know, you've got to, I mean, one of the things that when you're, in your 50s, you've got kids that are looking at college or whatever, and, and maybe some of them luckily are through college and you're just stuck paying for it. But, you know, one of the things that I think people need to consider, and I, I'm, I'm sure you know who Mike Rowe is. He's a, he's a TV personality who does, does sort of job type, uh, job type news stories. But anyway, he's the dirty, he, the dirty jobs guy, right? Right. He's done that. Yeah. So one of the things he's done is he's taken on the educational system and he said, look, you can go to a four-year institution 
and get a degree in thus and such, and you're unemployable. Yep. And so he's really pushed the idea of, and, and, and not only are you unemployable, you're in huge debt. And there are people who borrow substantial, you know, $200,000 to go to college. I mean, if you walked into a bank as, as an 18 year old and said, Hey, I want to borrow, you know, I want to borrow some money. Well, what, what do you want? How much you want? Well, I'm in, I'm in this school. It's a really fine institution and it's $67,000 a year. And that's actually a real tuition. Um, for a good school, but still. And okay, so what are you going to major in? I don't know yet. Well, what are you going to, uh, what are you going to, how are you going to pay back? Well, I'll get a really good job after I graduate from this fine institution and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll pay you back out of that. Well, what, what's the job with me? I don't know. <laughs> right. No bank's making that loan, but because no, these are right. non-dischargeable in bankruptcy, because the interest rate is 11%, they'll make those loans. And, you know, that, that, that kid has no prospect of paying that back. So it's, it's a tremendous problem that we have, and not many people are looking to solve it right now. And some of the solutions are not palatable because you, you, have, you have the kid I just described, right, who now isn't going to pay that back, but got the benefit of a fine liberal arts education, all the all the trappings of that and, you know, which is wonderful. It's awesome to be able to take history classes and all sorts of things, but you've got, what about that other kid who went to vocational school? He said, well, I can't really afford that. And I don't want that kind of debt. So I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to forego my opportunity to learn about history and all these other fascinating things and art. And I'm just going to learn how to be a plumber, but he's making a hundred thousand to, you know, hundred thousand. If he's, got uh, our entrepreneurial streak, maybe 200, 300,000 a year. So why is he paying for, so, so if we, you know, if we cancel all this debt, well, who's, someone's going to pay it. So why has he got to pay for this other kid who, you know, I just, it's a very difficult problem, but what, what scares me is it's getting worse. And so, you know, if you're looking at options for your child, I mean, I think, I know people who went to community college for two years and then came to University of Washington. Guess what? They got the exact same degree I got. Right. <laughs> and for well, I, much I think, less money. Right. So. Tal, I think, I think what you're going to see, you know, I, when I'm listening to you talk about education, and I always, I always talk with people about the fact that what we have today is so much online. You know, you want to learn history online, you know, go, go get your HVAC, uh, you know, education, go do something technical, make money. The education opportunities are there. They just look differently. But, you know, let me back up for a second, because this is fascinating to me when I look at your background and, and where you've come from. And, uh, you know, just to when I look at the mortgage back stuff that you've done, I, I, I understand the, the work that you've done on the opiate side. And that now it, look, it sounds like you're you're thinking a lot about student debt you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, what's interesting to me is your firm started when there was a problem and, and you came up with a solution for that problem. And I don't know what the ideal outcome, you know, was there if it was met, but that was the origination of, of your organization. And um, that, that is something we find over and over again with successful entrepreneurs 
is they're not just going through the status quo of, you know, hey, you could get up every day like a lot of other law firms um, and do things for, uh, not, not to not to degrade the profession, but there's a lot of um, different types of law work that go on. And yours is driven towards coming up with solutions. And I like what you said about the cho- choke point in the system. Um, but talk to me a little bit about, so your firm today, what, what is that? So, so here you have, you started this firm from, from this mortgage back litigation and how many people, t- tell me a little bit about, about your firm today. You know, one of the things I saw was that this is, and this interests me that you, you put on, on the uh, website, it's a majority women owned law firm. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, that was just dumb luck, really. It, it, that, that had nothing to do with, that wasn't by design. It just so happened that the majority of the shareholders in the firm are female and own a larger interest than I do. Uh, I'm the only male shareholder. So that, that just, that wasn't intentional. I think it was just simply a function of creating an environment where everyone is treated equally. And quite frankly, I think law firms, Many of them discriminate against women because they don't allow them opportunities uh, to raise children. And one of the things, I mean, the way my firm started was it was me, and I called a guy named Ron Liebman, a dear friend of mine, also an equity partner at Patton Boggs, who had retired. I said, Ron, I've got this thing, and I need your help. And to give you an idea how old Ron is, he prosecuted Spiro T. Agnew. So he's been around a while. And he is a terrific lawyer. He's also, uh, he's also an author of many books, fiction books, big laws, his latest, and it's great. But anyway, Ron said, well, I'll help you, but I don't want to go to an office. And I said, well, Ron, I don't want to go to an office either. So why don't we just work <laughs> from home? And we just literally used a friend's office as a mail drop. And we disclosed that to everybody. In fact, when the Wall Street Journal interviewed me about the firm, I took him to that mail drop and had him meet the lawyer and said, I don't, I don't work here. I don't ever come here. This is where our mail comes. And so, you know, it wasn't, we didn't hide that at all, but by, by virtue of having a structure where people are able to work from home, where people are true independent contractors. And that's the other thing, the, the lawyers who we brought in, we actually had a, I had a tax, partner at Pat and Boggs. I said, I want you to set this up so that I actually have independent contractors working for me. And so we went through the tax code and literally just picked out all the things that, that the tax code requires for independent contractors, things that most law firms, when they have independent contractors, don't even follow themselves. So, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a foreign concept. In fact, it was so foreign that when the IRS audited me, on this very issue, the guy said, I've never seen this before. And I remember thinking to myself, you've never seen someone actually follow the tax code. <laughs> you know, and obviously we came out spotless on that issue, but it just, you know, sometimes just following the law is, is best solution to a problem. And, and here the independent contractor stat, statute uh, really allows people flexibility in their working hours. Uh, it doesn't require them to be in an office at any set time or place. And so uh, when that is actually followed properly, women can thrive because 
they typically are the ones responsible for bringing up the kids. Uh, that, you know, forcing them to go to an office or be at an office from nine to five or whatever your hours are that you're making them go there is very difficult for them because, you know, there's things at school, they've got, you know, so allowing people the freedom to work when they want to work. Uh, and it doesn't work for everybody because there are some people who just aren't adults really. And they need like the supervision day to day. And those people fail at a firm like this, but people who are adults who are focused on trying to get something done, uh, they're, they're going to, they're going to be successful. And so, you know, we just had a lot of women, uh, succeed at the firm and, um, and, you know, rewarded them appropriately. And that's kind of how we got to that point, but with the women owned thing, but, but I, I do think that, you know, the way the firm was structured helped a lot in terms of being successful. Cause the other thing we did was we didn't do the traditional law firm model. The traditional law firm model is a leverage model where you essentially have lots and lots of very young lawyers who don't really know what they're doing. And it's not a slight on them. It's just you practice law. So the more practice you have, the better you get. It's like anything else. And you're still practicing law when you're in your fifties, right? Right. You don't know everything. I don't, I don't do everything perfectly. I make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. It's not possible. It practicing law is very, very difficult. And like any difficult profession, you're never going to do everything perfectly. It just doesn't happen. But you, you, the fewer, you know, the more experience you have, the fewer and fewer your mistakes become, hopefully. And so, you know, by, by only, we wouldn't, we didn't do that. We didn't have scores of young people. In fact, we didn't have any people who had just graduated from law school. We, we solely had seasoned professionals. And so as a consequence of that, we were a lot more efficient, frankly, um, that, the way it worked at the big firms was you sort of gave the assignment to the, the newbie and the newbie did the best they could, but it really wasn't up to the standards you expected at a big firm. And so somebody else revised it and that still wasn't there. And then it got revised again and maybe again uh, as it went up the chain and then, then it got to the senior partner. And a lot of times the senior partner was like, this isn't right at all. <laughs> but now it's too late to fix it. And so you just sort of got too many cooks in a kitchen issue. And, you know, we've, my view, when I got out of the big firm system, I thought my view would be more towards a simpler system where when, when I, by the time I see anything, it's done and I might have five or six changes, but it's, it's, and it's more of a collaborative system. In other words, it's sort of a, all right, what are we going to say here? What are we going to talk about? What's the points we need to make? Okay, let's go make them. Um, and it just, it's so much more efficient, particularly when you're, as we do, uh, a lot of, you're doing your cases on a contingency fee basis. You don't have the luxury to get something done six, seven times. It's just not feasible. So you're trying to minimize the amount of time you're spending. And, you know, that, that reflects if we do hourly work, that reflects on that too, because it's just done much more efficiently and quickly and the bills are lower as a consequence of that. So it costs yeah. you money to do it that way. But to me, it's, it's worth the, the minimization of the stress and heartache that <laughs> is associated with, with, you know, 
trying to do it the other way, trying to leverage the total number of legal hours and create some kind of structure that justifies that where you're saying, oh, yeah, well, that person took longer, but their rate's lower. And so, right. you know, I, I, I prefer the other. That, that's a very stressful way to practice law, I think, and a lot of people will tell you that uh, if they're being candid. Well, you hit on something that, um, you know, when we when we talk with business owners, we we're often talking about freedom and you mentioned freedom. And I think more and more that, you know, people define freedom different ways. Right. There's financial freedom, which we all aspire to. But there's also more and more. The biggest thing that I hear is freedom of time and and whether that that's the uh, attorney working from the house who's raising kids and, and trying to do case or you as an owner, because I know, I know you and I, I know what, you know, you have outside interests and other things that are important to you. So, so what, what does freedom mean as a, as a business owner running this organization? How important is that? What, 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 how do you define that? Well, there's a great line from a poem that I just heard uh, listening to a, a lecture series on the Greek and Persian wars, and the poem was written for Alexander the Great, and the, the, the question posed to him was, if the world be not worth the winning, is it also not worth enjoying? And the poem was called Alexander's Feast, where they got drunk and set fire to the palace of the great king, which they now owned, and like realized too late, sobered up and realized too late, that they were literally burning down their own palace and uh, couldn't put down the flames. And it, it's, a, it's a great monument now in terms of the waste, right? It was one of the greatest treasures of the ancient world. And all that's left now are these 60 foot high charred uh, stone columns, beautiful columns, just sitting there forlorn, forlornly on the plains of Persia reaching into the sky, holding up nothing. And, you know, and so the question is, it for me is, is <laughs> you only get one, you get one shot to live. That's it. Yeah. And I, I remember sitting in an office, I won't name the firm, but it was a big firm in New York. And I'm there with a friend of mine who is, is at a firm in Seattle. And we're both plaintiff's lawyers and we both have a very similar view of the world. And I remember looking at him and going, and we're staring at this, this beautiful view of New York City. But I remember staring out there with him and saying, you know, there are people who come to this firm, they become a partner here, they work day and night, and then they die. And that was it. And I just, you know, I, I look at that and I say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do the things that I love. I love practicing law. That's fun for me. I like being up here in Maine. I like having the flexibility to do that kind of stuff. And so it is, it is something that I'm, you know, I, I cherish that, but I also cherish working from home because I get to see my kids when I worked at the big firm that you don't, you don't see them. You just don't. And it's, you know, it's sad really. So watching them grow up, being able to have the ability to, as I was talking about, Hey, I want to go to this thing at the school. You know, I want to get to know the other parents at the school. Um, I think those things are very valuable for just raising your kids. And, and, and then, you know, the other thing is you mentioned, 
I love the outdoors and I like exposing my kids to the outdoors too, because I think when you think about, you know, you, you can give them all the education in the world, but at the end of the day, there has to be some adversity that's, that's not typical, you know? And the great thing about the outdoors is that exists in spades, right? You, you're out in your sailboat and you flip it. What do you do now? <laughs> you're out to chop and the, the lightning's coming. And, you know, so trying to find those kinds of things where you can, where you, you can give them structured adversity, skiing, cross-country skiing, all of those things, you know, they're, they're tough things to do. And they, they toughen you in ways that, I, you know, I think sports are, is great for that too. But there's something about being in nature that sports just can't really teach you. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you, you, I was thinking the other day just about listening to this lecture on, on ancient Greece and Persia and all these achievements these people made. And I thought if, if, if we went back in time, like if we, if they put us in a time machine and we went back in time to there, would we dominate or be dominated? And I think Absolutely. the answer is we would be, we would be dominated because we can't do <laughs> the things that they can do. Right. I mean, the, the creation of massive works of, of stone without any electricity or even, you know, lights, <laughs> it just it boggles the mind what they achieved and how far we've fallen in, in the sense of become so reliant on technology and other things that we don't do anything anymore. It, it, it you know, and I, and so trying to give your kids an ability to, to, to do those kind of basic things that, that are useful to know. I mean, cooking. So, I mean, just, just to give you a great yeah. example, when, when I was in uh, junior high, they made us take woodworking, metal, shop, um, sewing, and uh, cooking. I use those skills more than almost anything else I used. I use that I learned in, in any, at any level of my education. And, you know, now those are gone. And I actually asked when we were, we were at a private school and I actually asked if they had those things. And they looked like, they looked at me like I was, you know, from Mars. How crazy would it be to teach someone to sew or, you know, I mean, these are good life right. skills though that, that are important. And so we don't, we just don't have our education anymore. And I go back, I was reading up on, uh, you know, the financial crisis and how close we actually came to a great depression. Tim Geithner put out a book in 2014 where he says that if, if we hadn't stabilized this thing, and I don't think he's bragging here because I, I think he takes some responsibility for letting the thing get to where it was also, but you know, and I, I think he realized he bears some of that responsibility. But I mean, he said that this would have been five times worse than the Great Depression. And I, right. I, I mean, he was just talking about the, the magnitude of losses that individuals experienced. But you also have to think back then people were somewhat self-reliant, right? They were able to, uh, they were able to go out and hunt, they could skin a rabbit, they could catch a fish, they could, they could prep a fish. I mean, they could do all those things uh, that helped them survive. They knew how to garden. You know, they could raise chickens. I, <laughs> in today's society, if we had the same level of meltdown, it's, it's terrifying to think because people don't have the skills. 
Don't. Cal, I think I think that I mean you hit on it, and I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, you know, I just got back from Boy Scout camp, and what what is great about that is for one week there were no electronics, there were no phones. These boys were outside 24 hours a day, seven days, and they camped, they hiked, they worked on that type of stuff, outdoor stuff, and not one complaint, by the way. Of, of a lack of electronic or others. And, you know, I remember um, learning how to sew in basic training, right, and different things that you, you were required to do. Very important. But, you know, it, that, and that I, I totally agree with you. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, we're getting towards the end, and, and I think we could talk for hours on this because this is really good stuff. Here's my question to you, kind of a last question, and then we'll we'll wrap up. But you know, as a business owner, as you look back on your journey, what advice would you have for, you know, whether it's a, a business owner that's in their 50s and they've been running the business for a while, you know, as you look out into the future and you think about your business and what the direction or, you know, that that maybe that second half entrepreneur who's coming out of corporate has that passion for something and, and they want to pursue their own business in that what, what advice based on your journey would you would you share with them well it's the saddest thing for me is is people who live lives with unfulfilled dreams so somebody's been sitting there and you know there's a great scene in in uh, up in the air with George Clooney where the guy says you know what do i tell my kids and he says and he sa- he says look i'm not i'm not and, and he says, the guy says, aren't you supposed to make me feel better? And, and Clooney says, I'm a wake up call. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you love to cook. What did they pay you to give up your dreams? And the guy kind of recognizes, and that, that's to me it, like pursue your passion. If you're 50 years old and you've not been passionate about what you're doing, think about trying something that you care about that you love. I don't care what it is really, as long as it's legal. Um, I'm all for it. I love to see people, people love to see people with a passion for what they're doing. And so if you have that, I would encourage it. I mean, the, the, there was a philosopher named I Socrates who was a, was a student of Socrates, strangely. And he went to the Olympic games and he said, you know, if you doubled the athletic prowess of every person here, it would do nothing for the betterment of society. But if you doubled the intellect of just one human being, all, all society would benefit. And I guess I would add to that, if you doubled the passion of one human being, many, many people, if not all society, will also benefit. So, you know, if you're, if you're not passionate now, there's got to be something that you love that you've been dreaming about doing. And I would say, give it a shot because you don't get another chance. Uh, that's just great. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's a great way to kind of end our, our conversation today. Cal. So let me ask you this. If our listeners um, want to learn more about you or your firm, or they want to connect with you, what, what's the best way to, to do that? I uh, just, Email tal at talcottfranklin.com. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Man, 
Sal. I appreciate you. Like I said, you always get me thinking at a different level, um, which I appreciate. I knew that would be great. And I, I truly appreciate you being on the call today. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. The Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Epic Business Advisory, where we help entrepreneurs escape the owner's trap, build businesses that can succeed without you, allowing you the opportunity to realize more freedom, think bigger, and pursue next-level goals. Download our freedom formula at epicsbiz.com slash formula. And remember, we're only getting started.